Hello, Rebecca Langley here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network and brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week I spoke with Aaron Mulvaganam from the Tamil Refugee Council about the situation of Tamil asylum seekers Priya and Nardis and their two young girls and why union solidarity is so important right now. Then we'll hear an interview by Marissa with Lyra Watson, the ACTU Indigenous Officer, about the continuing fight of Indigenous Australians to recover stolen wages. But first, some union news. Last Wednesday, August 28th, Australian workers marked Equal Pay Day. The date signifies the additional 59 days women have to work from the end of the last financial year on June 30 to earn the same amount as men. The date is worked out using data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics that compares average base salaries of men and women, which shows a gender pay gap of 14%. The ACTU called for the Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter to address the pervasive and ongoing inequality for women at work in his upcoming review of the Fair Work Act given the failure of any improvements in the gender pay gap. According to data from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, collated in 2018, the national gender pay gap, which is calculated on the difference in average weekly full-time base salary earnings for men and women, is 14%, barely unchanged from 14.1% the previous year, which is a difference of $241.50 per week. In terms of income, that data shows that on average women working full-time earned $1,484.80 while men working full-time earned $1,726.30. However, when looking at full-time total remuneration, which measures base salary plus any additional benefits such as superannuation, bonus payments, performance pay, discretionary pay, overtime and other allowances and benefits, the gap remains stubbornly high at 21.3% for all industries. In order for there to be improvements to the gender pay gap, we need better access to collective bargaining, safeguards for work security, a reversal of penalty rate cuts and more transparency in non-salary payments such as performance bonuses and retention bonuses. These are vital improvements to our workplace laws if this government is serious about addressing the stagnating gender pay gap. Stick Together has been covering the issues of the gig economy for a long time, and workers continue to fight back against exploitation. Last Wednesday, the ABC and other news services reported that food delivery giant Deliveroo is being sued by one of its former workers in a case that could have major ramifications for the gig economy. Deliveroo is accused of exploiting its bicycle couriers by failing to pay the minimum wage, penalty rates and superannuation. Former delivery rider Jeremy Rind will argue in the Federal Circuit Court that he should have been paid an hourly minimum of $19.49. Instead, Deliveroo paid him $9 per delivery. In order to succeed, Mr Rind, who is represented by the Transport Workers Union, will need to convince the court that Deliveroo engages in sham contracting. This is an arrangement where a company hires its workers as independent contractors instead of employees to avoid paying minimum wage, sick leave, penalty rates and superannuation. 
Under Australian law, contractors are not entitled to those benefits as they are treated as self-employed people running their own businesses. But a number of delivery riders have told the ABC that was not the case and they had no real control over how, when or where they worked. One rider, Mark, said he constantly felt pressured by delivery to work long hours, sacrifice his weekends and not take holidays. I worked more than a year with no weekends off, usually every day, Monday to Sunday. How do I feel? Exploited, humiliated. I don't feel proud to earn $5 or $10 per hour, but I need to buy food for my family. Mark has been a delivery rider for the past three years since immigrating from South America to regional Victoria. When asked why he continued to work for delivery, he said, I don't have a choice. I've been applying for at least 100 new jobs and I don't speak good English. The outcome of the delivery case will turn on how much control the company has over its contractors, according to Sarah Kane, a gig economy expert from the University of Technology, Sydney. There's definitely a case to be heard, and it will be interesting to see how the sham contracting provisions of the Fair Work Act are interpreted in this particular court, she said. In a statement, Delivery defended its practices by pointing to the freedom, flexibility and well-paid work it offers to more than 8,000 riders across the nation. Delivery riders in Australia work 15 hours a week, earning $22 per hour on average, fitting riding around study, hobbies, caring responsibilities and other work, the company said. Although Deliveroo offers its riders flexibility, it does come at a price. In his court documents, Mr Rind claims Deliveroo's high degree of control suggests riders are more likely to be employees than contractors. Deliveroo's ranking of its riders bears some similarities to the batch system adopted by its failed competitor, Foodora, which collapsed in late 2018. Foodora lost an important case at the Fair Work Commission, which found it had engaged in sham contracting by the way it classified riders. This could be very significant if the court recognises Mr Rind as an employee, as opposed to the Fair Work Ombudsman's decision in June this year that classified Uber drivers as independent contractors rather than employees. This case will have implications for other riders. Uber Eats, Manulog and tens of thousands of Australian workers could potentially be affected, Mr Rind said. Critics of the gig economy argue that the success of Deliveroo and its rival food delivery companies depends on their ability to keep costs low by maintaining a cheap workforce. They also say that if the law was to change, these companies would be forced to pay employee benefits, which would threaten their business model. Just because a worker is engaged via an app doesn't mean they should be forced to work below minimum rates, said Transport Workers Union National Secretary Michael Caine. No amount of talk about flexibility can dress this up as anything but exploitation. Riders have the right to be paid a fair rate, and that is what we will be fighting for. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. You may have heard about the Tamil family that was almost deported this week. Well, the ACTU released a statement on Friday calling on Prime Minister Scott Morrison to intervene and stop the deportation of Priya, Nadish and their two Australian-born children to Sri Lanka. The ACTU President Michelle O'Neill said Scott Morrison can intervene to protect this family. Their community in Bilawela are campaigning to bring them home. The Prime Minister must do whatever he can to protect this couple and their Australian-born children. I talked with Aaron Mulvaganam from the Tamil Refugee Council to find out what exactly is happening to this family and why it is important for the union movement to support them. 
Yeah, so it has been a very difficult um, uh, few days uh, for all of us uh, involved in the campaign. Uh, the family was uh, taken from Mitre Detention Center and then to Darwin and then to Christmas Island. And the, the whole experience for the children would have been traumatic. Uh, it's um, it's terrifying, you know, how they handled the, the removal uh, in the first place. We had over 50 guards uh, involved in taking the family uh, from Mitre Detention Center to the airport. Uh, they were separated from their mother. And at the airport, you know, on the, on the plane, over 50 guards uh, were on the plane, uh, along with Piria Nades and the two children, um, and, uh, uh, and, and four other refugees who were also being deported on that day. Um, 50 guards on the plane uh, for uh, a family of four, it's, it's quite ridiculous, you know, yeah. the amount of money... Uh, used in uh, removing this family, thousands of dollars just just going down the drain. And it's also not the first time that that's happened. Like when they were brought from Biluela to to Mita, they were separated as well, weren't they? That's right, and, and I'll come back to that, uh, you know, shortly. But um, you know, on the plane uh, while they were taken to Darwin um, throughout the journey. The children were kept away from their mother, and um, Taronika, the youngest daughter, was constantly crying. and uh, And Piria begged the guards, uh, you know, just to give the uh, you know give her the the daughter for ten minutes so that she can console her, and um, and and they wouldn't. Uh, she was denied uh, to be uh, with 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 her daughters. And when they got to Darwin Airport. They were kept in a Mercury uh, hotel, and then they were taken to uh, the the military barracks. And then the military was involved in removing the family to um, uh, to the uh, <coughs> uh, sorry uh, to uh, Christmas Island. And on the Christmas Island, uh, they uh, were taken into a room that was full of dust. Um, children had coal from the dust. You know, they were given a loaf of bread that was uh, long expired. And, you know, they eventually cleaned the room and given given them food that's not properly cooked. Uh, children are still being not given adequate food. Uh, there's no snacks available for them. You know, the whole experience, I just can't imagine my own daughter uh, ever being put through this process. I, I don't know how I would manage. It's uh, it's terrible that uh, our government is um, destroying people's lives for the sake of their agenda of, uh, you know, protecting the borders. It doesn't make sense at all that, uh, you know, this treatment of this family is what's needed to to protect uh, our borders. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really terrible, but you know, there's a lot of people who have come out in support of this family. Um, there were a lot of support for this family from day one when they were, the, the, the way they were removed uh, yeah. from the Villa Villa community. Um, and uh, and that support continues to this date. And, and over the weekend, we had thousands of people all over the country, all walks of the, you know, all sections of of the political spectrum have been uh, supporting uh, this family. Uh, you know, we have got the trade union movement um, 
you know, openly campaigning uh, for for this family to be allowed to stay here. We got uh, Labour politicians actively speaking out in support of this family. Um, and, and we also have conservatives like Alan Jones and Barnaby Joyce, you know. Uh, they want this uh, family to stay here as well. Peter Dutton is adamant that this family should be um, sent back. Um, he has even uh, gone on Courier Mail uh, to write an editorial overnight justifying his actions. Um, they are, uh, you know, the Peter Dutton's... Um, uh, supporters in the media as well are trying to uh, undermine the campaign as much as they can. But I think a lot of Australians have woken up to the, the, the lies of the, the Australian government. There are uh, so many people able to see through the, the, the lies spread by, um, you know, certain section of uh, the, the government. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that all those people who are closely monitoring uh, the developments, they will come out in the next few days and, and speak out in support of this family. You know, at this point, people power is what's going to stop this family from being uh, removed to Sri Lanka. And, you know, if you really care, you got to turn out uh, to any events that we organize. you got to contact your local MP. You've got to contact the, the minister's office, prime minister's office, and do something to uh, to send your opposition to what, how the government is treating this family. Yeah, and why is it so important to have the solidarity of the union movement? Well, the, you know, union, there are over 2 million workers in Australia uh, who are part of the trade union movement. The trade union movement historically has been on the side of the oppressed. And, and we know that while the Australian government has been attacking the refugees, they have been using the, the whole issue to keep people distracted while they undermine our working conditions. Penalty rates were cut by this government. So many other conditions have been taken away. More attacks on CFMEU and, uh, and other strong unions. All this is happening while they're undermining refugee rights. And it's, it's important that... Uh, the trade union movement smash Australia's refugee policy and do something actively to support the refugees. And and this is a great opportunity, you know. Uh, We have managed to win all sections of Australians to to be on the side of uh, this family. And trade union movement should mobilise its supporters, its members um, in support of this family as well. Yeah. And so there's going to be an action on Wednesday outside the court, is that right? There is going to be an action outside the court at 8.30 a.m., I believe, um, outside uh, the federal court, uh, uh, Flagstaff Gardens. Yeah, that's in Melbourne. That's in Melbourne, that's yes, right. Yeah. And what about people in other parts of Australia? Uh, there is a Facebook page uh, called Bring Period Nowadays and Their Two Children uh, to Villa Villa. Mm. Uh, that Facebook page will have updates of any actions in other parts of Australia, so I strongly encourage your listeners to keep an eye on the, the Facebook page. Yeah.
There is a website as well for this campaign, yeah. hometobilo.com. Yeah. I strongly encourage uh, uh, listeners to go to that website as well and use the talking points available on the website to take part in an action. Yeah. Uh, at this moment, um, it is the Liberal MPs who can pressure the government to let this family stay here. Yeah. Um, you know, Don't just... Ask your uh, local MP to speak to the Prime Minister. Ask them to come out, publicly speak out in support uh, of this family. Okay, thanks very much, Aaron, for speaking with us. Thank you. We just heard from Aaron Mulvaganam about the importance of supporting Priya and Nardis and their family in their struggle for protection in Australia. Next, we'll hear from Lara Watson about her work with Indigenous communities to recover stolen wages. This interview was done by Marissa from the Do and Time show on 3CR Community Radio. So I'm a very Gubba woman from Central West Queensland and I'm currently the Indigenous Officer at the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Uh, and we've, um, the work that I'm doing now is around the Community Development Program through First Nation Workers Alliance. Um, again, you know, you can put this in the category of stolen wages. We have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers in remote communities that are being forced onto this punitive and racist program and they're in jobs that we would consider wage jobs anywhere else in the country and they're doing this work for the equivalent of a new start payment. They're not covered by occupational health and safety. They get, don't get superannuation. Um, so there are really appalling situations, particularly around health and safety. Um, and if they don't do the activity, then they're threatened uh, with breaches for up to eight weeks. And so CDP was basically introduced by the Coalition Minister for Aboriginal Affairs on the 1st of July 2015? Yeah, so this was um, the coalition's revamp to the Community Development and Employment Program, which was in place under a Labor government. And basically, they've just ripped out the employment section of CDEP, um, and then they've opened it up to private enterprise as well, which has never been done in the history of any training or employment program in remote communities. Um, So we've got Potential for new jobs in communities from private enterprise, but instead of them being filled as a wage job, they're being filled by CDP workers. The First Nations people from remote communities, why aren't they being encouraged to have cooperatives and self-determination? Absolutely. And we get that from communities all the time when we're going around. You know, they've kind of lost this pride and dignity in, in and around employment because everyone deserves the dignity of work and they've been denied this. And what we're seeing is, you know, people are just moving off a country because they don't want to be under this program and they're living homelessly in regional towns as opposed to living and working on country. You know, we're over on Groot Island and we had a gentleman there who was a fully qualified builder. So he'd done his apprenticeship in the late 70s um, but he couldn't get a job on the island at all. And we took a drive around and we counted over 30 fly-in, fly-out workers, non-Indigenous, 
working on new builds and extensions in that community, yet he couldn't get a job. You know, and we hear one of the regular causes of breaches and why people are not getting paid for eight weeks is because of sorry business. So if they're going out on sorry business or sorry care, that's not considered a viable excuse for not participating. We even had a woman that thought she was doing the right thing. She went into her job service provider. She lost her husband on the weekend. She was devastated, just letting them know she couldn't do CDP. She had sorry business to attend to, and she was breached for eight weeks. That's not really taking, you know, sorry business into consideration, is it? The Aboriginal law? No, and they don't. They don't think about... um, the remoteness either, the isolation within some community. Um, we had a gentleman that had severe mental health issues and the activities were causing him harm. Um, and he needed to get a certificate from a Centrelink approved doctor and it took him three days' travel to be able to get that documentation. But when he got back to the community, the documentation wasn't the right documentation and he was breached for eight weeks. Um, so we're hearing some really horrifying stories. We've got um, a young fella over in Western Australia. So he had no shoes on, shorts, no gloves or eyewear, and he was asked to operate a drop fall. So when he asked for gloves, boots and glasses, the job service provider told him they weren't obligated to provide that. Um, and he had refused to do the activity, and when he refused, he was then threatened with a breach of eight weeks. And this same lad, you know, he's there doing his CDP. There was a couple of activities that he didn't do for sorry business. Six months later, he gets a letter from Centrelink that had six months' worth of breaches on it, and they were basically taking that whole sum out of his payment. Um So then again, you know, he's at least a month without any money coming in whatsoever. Um, There's very limited job opportunities. So to see what jobs are available being filled by CDP is like twofold. It's hitting the community twice. And they aren't considered workers. So they fit under the social security legislation, not under any industrial stream. So because of that, they don't actually have access to industrial tools like Fair Work Australia or trade unions um, because the government's wording with they do activities, not jobs. They're participants, not workers. And fitting under that social security stream just is the way they're covering their own asses, but they've actually excluded a whole group of workers, like there's 35,000 workers under CDP at any one time, and 33,000 of those are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we've done a bit of a comparison, um, and you look at the Gurindji, when they first walked off around wages and conditions, um, they wanted equal payment as their non-Indigenous workers next to them. And when we look back at that, And look at now, when you do the comparison, our guys in remote communities are being paid less. Yeah. You know, what's 
what's the good of words if it's not followed up by action? Um, and, you know, a banner sticks in my head that's quite or- iconic around the rudd apology is, you know, saying sorry means you never do it again. Yet we seem to have this history of continual oppressive policy through government, but they're just called something else each time. So that cycle really needs to stop and there needs to be real meaningful consultation with remote communities um, and looking at job investment um, in communities so people can live on country, work on country and have the, the dignity of work. Communities do have the right to self-determination and they know what's best for their community. And not any one community is the same either. You know, we've seen some really amazing incentives that have come off the back of remote communities tackling a variety of issues. So if we can have government actually acknowledge that and invest in what is already happening um, and let communities take control of that and to build an economic base, you know, that that's going to break the cycle um, that governments just seem to keep repeating. It seems to be the flavour for governments is just finding any opportunity to put any people into slave labour. I mean, you look at... Um, the $4 internships that are happening. You work for the Dole, both in Job Active and CDP. We just seem to be having to work two and three jobs to be able to put food on the table. And we've lost, you know, the, the Aussie fair go where you could actually go to work and earn enough to put a roof over your head, food on your table and send your kids to school. Like, we need to actually band together as one, as workers. We're the majority. Um, we're the ones that actually spend money and we're the ones that actually build the economy. None of this big business trickle-down economics. We know it doesn't work. And the broader community, um, I don't know if they actually realise our remote First Nations communities are always the guinea pigs. And... I'll use the intervention as an example with the basic card. So no one gave an uproar more broadly about this basic card. And now we're actually seeing it rolled out in mainstream. You know, we're also seeing versions of CDP being rolled out. So if people don't get up and be loud and fight against the injustices in our remote communities, you can be sure that those programs will be knocking on their door next. Absolutely. An injury to one is an injury to all. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Aaron Mulvaganam and Marissa from the Do and Time show on 3CR Community Radio. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Rebecca Langley. Catch you next time.